we want to talk about songs this morning. Who likes music? Anyone like music this morning? What do we sing about? <laughs> you guys are like, well, it depends on what you're listening to, right? <laughs> what your kids are listening to might not be things that you want to sing about, or at least not in public, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Songs are basically, uh, gosh, how do you explain this? We talked about in the first week of Advent, we talked about stories and how it's something that we all share. Like, you know, the story which you have, your life, your experiences, how you've gotten to this point. We all have one. And what happens for us is when we choose to open up and to share these stories, it's the way that we connect. It's the way that things that seem distant become uh, real to us. And so what happens for us is it's through this ability to share stories together and to step into someone else's story. Uh, it's amazing in a movie... You can sit there and watch this story that has nothing to do with you, but somehow it brings you into it, and it becomes your story, and you just find yourself connected to it, okay? Uh, you know, if you like the romantic comedies, maybe a Sleepless in Seattle, anybody? Come on, Kelly. Or if you like the movies for Christmas, right? I Die Hard, I mean, you just find yourself in it, right? Here we go, see? See, Kelly, it's a real thing. But it's also a weird thing, isn't it? I mean, how a story has the ability to suck us in. And, and, and so what happens in these stories, again, it helps things that aren't real become real for us. Because what's real to you might not be real to me. But the moment that we sit down and we begin to share and we begin uh, to get into each other's shoes, your life becomes real to me. Now, with Advent, what, it's hard for us because we're trying to connect to a story which is hundreds of years old. It's something that's foreign to us. It's distant. And, you know, it really takes effort. But in the same way that we all have stories, we also have songs. Now, who here knows that you have a song? And, 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 yeah, and you all look at me, especially the men are like, I don't have a song. I do not sing. What's different from a song and a story is that when you have a song, it typically includes your story. So like, you know, country music is famous for this, right? No one listens to country music? Okay. What happens in those songs, right, is it's a way to tell the story, the, the experiences, you know, which that person has had, okay? You know, their dog died, their car got repossessed, their house burned down, their wife left them. Right? And again, it's a way of sharing story. But there's something else in songs which is different from a story. Songs don't stop at sharing what we've been through. Songs are also ways that we begin to kind of talk about where we're going. So a story is what is your past and what is your present. But a song is what your past and present is pointing you to. It's, it's where you see your life going, or where you hope for your life to go. And so even though you, you guys might not have a song written down, you might not sing you know, in a shower or anything like that, we all have a, a song, if you would, that's very unique to us. It's something that, that only we have. And so what happens in our song is that it's in this place that we begin to be honest about what we are truly hoping for what we really want. 
What's funny about music is the music that we begin to listen to is the stuff that we identify with as far as the things that we've been through, the things we understand, and then it's also the things that we want in life. And what's interesting in the Scriptures, in the Gospel of Luke, he has four songs which mark the birth of Jesus. And it's in these four songs that we're going to kind of study this morning. But what's inside our song is, again, it's showing us what we are truly hoping for in the future. And uh, Pastor Jay was very honest this morning. She came up here and shared about Sean and how it's easy for her to stop hoping for his healing. It's easy for her to just get, because her past, her experiences has been, you know, what, 23 years now? Of him not speaking. Of him not talking. Of him having autism. And so her experiences have led her to her present. And right now, in the place where she is, Sean is not fully healed yet. He's not. And often, it's what we've been through and where we are that shapes what we're hoping for. It's what shapes our song. And often for us, what happens is that we begin to have a hope that begins to dwindle and to fade. And so the question for us this morning is, what are we really hoping for? Why do we really need Jesus to return? Um, what's funny about this, when it comes to Christmas, when you become an adult, when you have children, Christmas is not what it used to be for you, agreed? If you guys have kids, right? When you were a child, you had this expectation and a hope, right? Your song was, please Santa, come today because I want... Yes. And you've got all these things which you can just visualize what's beneath the box in the wrapping because you have been asking and waiting for that thing to happen. And so for you, Christmas was all about having your hope meet your expectation. And so for you, you would sit there with the tree and you would start to, okay, I think this is the right size to be the action figure which I asked mom for. Right? I think this is the basketball which I really wanted, right? You still do that, right? I mean, again. <laughs> you can't share your secrets with us, Matthew, okay? <laughs> and so what happens for us, right, is the moment that we shift in that place, the moment that, that you know, we're the ones who have the kids, who have the desires, who have the hopes, Christmas is still special because it's family, but we don't have the same kind of excitement for it that we used to. I'm especially if you're a family uh, who the, the budget line might be a little bit tight for you, and you know that your spouse cannot get the thing that you're asking for, and if they do, they're in big trouble, right? It's just different, right? Because you don't have anything which is at the tree that you've been waiting for, hoping for. It's because, again, your expectations have changed. And because you don't believe anymore that there's really going to be that thing which you need under the tree, you stopped hoping for it. And because you stopped hoping for it, you've stopped waiting for it. So this morning, again, the question for us is, what are we waiting for on Jesus? And it's so hard for most of us to get into Advent. It's hard for us to realize, okay, why am I getting excited? Why is it important for us to wait and, you know, like to stir expectation? I mean, Jesus came and he died and, you know, when we die, we go to heaven. So what are we waiting for? And and I think that as we open up this morning, hopefully, the hope that I have is that you will rediscover what it is that you are waiting for Jesus to accomplish in your life.
What you're waiting for him to restore, to heal, to bring back to you. So, if you guys will stand with me this morning, we're going to read the main passage of Scripture for this morning. This is the Song of Mary. The mother of Jesus is called the Magnificat, right? Fancy words, you guys want to use that? Everyone will think you're super smart. Here we go. Luke 1, verse 46. Here's what she said. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble, poor state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Father, we just come to you this morning. Uh, Spirit of God, we ask that you'd fill us this morning. We ask that we would be able to be led into a place of honesty that we would be able to, to grab a hold of what things we truly are waiting for you. And in that, what things we've stopped waiting and what places we've stopped expecting you and what ways we've stopped needing you. And uh, Spirit of God, we ask that you would lead us to that place of vulnerability, that we would be ready and able and willing to lean on you again, to trust in you again, to hope again. And everyone said, Amen. You can all be seated. Now, with the song that we just read, the odds are is that most of it just kind of just bounced off of us. You know, it, it's hard sometimes for scriptures to feel kind of relevant to us, the way it's worded, what they're talking about. But let's kind of set the scene a little bit for this prayer, okay? Mary, most scholars believe that she's about 14 years old at this point. And what's going on here is she's already had the angel show up to her. She's already had the immaculate conception, if you would. She's bearing child. She's bearing Jesus. She's gone to see Elizabeth, who's the mother of uh, John the Baptist. When they're there, she walks in the room, and John the Baptist, who's a fetus at the same time, leaps inside his mother. And so she, as Luke says, is filled with the Spirit, and she says, how blessed you are for what you carry. And then the Spirit begins to go from Elizabeth, and it, it, it's almost as if it's jumping around the room, and the Spirit jumps onto Mary, and then Mary sings her song. And this song is not like a song that most of us would hear on the radio, okay? What this is is a prophecy. She is trying to verbalize what she expects this child in her womb to do. This is a combination of her, her experiences, of her understandings of God, of Scripture, of life. She is trying to kind of put out into the world what she thinks this baby is going to bring and to accomplish. And when she does that, there are three main things which she highlights. If, if, if you guys are kind of paying attention with the verse. The first thing, which she says in verse 48, if you guys notice this, she calls herself humble. Now, the Greek word here, which is more accurate, is poor. And so the first thing which she highlights, she says, 
She believes that the Messiah in her, that God is going to acknowledge, first of all, those who are poor. Scholars believe that Mary comes from this group that's basically called the, the pious poor. It's, it's people who, who basically have no way to get out of this place of poverty, but they're waiting on God to be there to redeem them. Secondly, she goes in and she calls him Savior. And when she talks about Savior, to her she's a Jew. So, so when she says Savior, what she means is someone is going to lead us out. The Old Testament word for salvation was space. So when they would ask for salvation, they would say, God, give us room to roam, to be, to be free, right? And so in the Old Testament, when you hear those passages about God expanding their tent pegs, it's the same idea of salvation. God is freeing them. He's taking whoever would, would bind them, would hold them down, and He is pushing them out of the way to give them space. And so for her as a Jew, when she says salvation, she's saying a God who's going to take the Romans and push them out of the way. A God who's going to give Israel back their space, their land, their promised land, their freedom. A God who's going to liberate them. He's, he's going to break off the chains. And so when she says this, right around verse 52, she goes into past tense. She goes from present to past. And so what she says, she says, it's, the, it's my Savior. It's the God who's going to free us in the future, and it's going to be just like the way, and then she goes past tense, the way that God came in the past and He humbled mighty rulers in the past. So what she's saying is the same way that God humbled Babylon and Egypt and Assyria, God's going to humble who? Rome, right? I've taught on this enough. Come on, guys. Rome, okay? So she's seeing two things. The baby in her womb is going to bring justice for the poor. And he's going to do the second thing. He's going to free Israel from Rome. And then she, she goes on, on down to a third thing. And she talks about God providing food for the hungry. Now those are real kind of a tangible things, right? I know often when I used to read this passage, I used to think it was more like a, a spiritual hunger, right? He's going to provide for those who are spiritually hungry. And what's interesting is in the, math, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, he actually says that. But in this Gospel, the focus is on those who are physically poor and those who are physically hungry. Now, why would Mary be talking about a God who's going to come and to take care of the poor and those who are hungry? Because she knows what it's like to be poor and to be hungry. Her experiences are shaping her hope for the future. She is, she is pregnant with a baby, but also with expectation and hope. And she's saying, this Messiah is going to free me from what I have experienced because He loves me. Now, if we move on down, we're going to go to Luke uh, first chapter, verse 67. Now this is the father, this is Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Now his mouth has been silent, he has not been able to speak. Uh, he, he's the one the angel spoke to and told him that the baby was supposed to be called John. And when he first heard the angels prophesy about what John the Baptist was going to do, he doubted it. And that's why the sign to him was that he was going to be mute. And so the first words out of his mouth, he's been, he has been pondering this for nine months. He's, been able, he, he's not been able to speak for nine months, and he's been thinking about the Scriptures, he's been watching his wife, he's been watching Mary, he's been thinking about what is happening. And the first words to come out of his mouth here 
is this song that we see, the, the, uh, the song of Zechariah. Verse 67. And it says, Now uh, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Here's what he says. He said, Praise be to God, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of a servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies. Pause right there. He is going in depth on the same thing that Mary talked about, right? He's saying salvation, and then he explains what he's expecting, right? He says what? Salvation from our enemies. Notice what he doesn't say. Salvation from our sins, right? What's shaping his expectation is his experience. And we'll explain more of this as we go, but I want you to see this. His expectation is not exactly the same as Mary's. There's differences here. And so he says, uh, salvation from, from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to Abraham and to enable us to serve him without fear. What that means to be able to serve God without fear, Israel believed that their job was to model to the world what it looked like to be in a right relationship with God. And so what it meant was, the idea is that God is going to take Rome and throw them out of the way to make space for them. So now Israel can get back to doing what they've always been supposed to do, to model what it's like to be in relationship with Yahweh. In holiness, in righteousness before all our days, and you, my child, and see he's shifting focus now. And now what's very interesting about the prophecy in the song from Zechariah is that now he's talking about his son. He's now talking about John the Baptist. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Now, if you see this, what's going to prepare Israel for salvation? Because salvation isn't necessarily from sin for a Jew. What's going to prepare the people is going to be repentance. Because see, what the Jews believe is that Rome is here holding them down because of their sin. The, the, the corporate sin which they've done when they rebelled against God has led to punishment. And that if, if the entire nation would, would come to a place to be repentant to God, He's going to free them from Rome. And it goes on here and He says, uh, because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he lived out in the woods for a very long time until it was time. Now, I understand that that's a lot of Scripture and a lot of verse. Let me kind of bring it down to us. What I want you to see is this. The Spirit of God comes upon both of these people, Mary and Zechariah. They begin to sing a song of prophecy expectant hope. They, are, they cannot wait for the Messiah to come and bring what He's going to bring. But I want you to notice that while they are similar, they are different. If you notice, Zechariah says nothing about the poor. He says nothing about the hungry. And then we actually have a third song, which went on time for this morning. But Simeon, and you know, he's the priest who's been waiting his entire life to meet the Messiah. He the Spirit of God spoke to him in, in uh, Luke 2 and told him that he would see the Messiah before he dies. And so when Jesus comes in, what's interesting about all of this is that the prophecy of 
Zechariah, takes place on the eighth day, the day of circumcision. So the prophecy that we just read is taking place when John the Baptist is about to be circumcised. And what happens is the prophecy of Simeon takes place the day that Jesus is circumcised. And the prophecy of Simeon is very different from the first two. And again, I want to show you all this to show you that we each have a very unique hope in Jesus. While we all share the one common thing, right? Freedom from death. Okay? We have a hope in Jesus to free us from death. But in addition to that, every single one of us has very unique things which we are hoping for in God. And the problem is this. The problem is that if we are not in a place where there is this pulling, tugging, need or expectation, we need God to do this for us. It is a a sure sign that we are placing our hope and our expectations elsewhere. If you this morning, and and, and again, this is something that I've been wrestling with, if you are, are finding it difficult to understand why, what are we waiting for in Jesus? He's already died. He already did all that. What are we waiting for here? What's the point? It's already been done. What happens for us is that we have to come to this place where we allow ourselves to see the things in our life which are not okay. Where we allow our experiences to form something in us that says this needs to change. And it's easy for us to find a way to kind of to overlook these things. Pastor Juliana is, is a minister. She's been doing it for a very long time. And it is very easy even for her to just let it go. To stop hoping. To stop expecting. And what's kind of hidden inside these songs is a, is a demand, a ask on God. What's hidden inside the song of Zechariah and Mary is they aren't just prophesying. What they're saying is, please do this. If you're God, if you love me, if you're the one who's going to come and and to fix and change everything, then acknowledge my pain and come and change it. And again, for most of us, it's a stretch because we've been taught in church to ignore our pain, to, you know, to assume all things are fine and, and to, you know, if there's struggle, if there's problem, then it just means that we need more faith. But this process of having to discover what our song is, if you would, what we are hoping for is so crucial because I've found that it's very difficult for us to hope if we forget what we were hoping for, what we were waiting for. And then Christmas, Advent, church, it all just becomes this plastic thing in our lives. We're not really sure why we really need it. Yeah, when I die, yes, then I need Jesus. But aside from that, well, the finances are kind of low this week, or, you know, someone's sick, but really day-to-day, moment-to-moment, there's not a real tug on us. It's not the central thing in our lives. It's not because we haven't, you know, had places in our lives that, that desire us. It's not that there's not problems. It's just that we've just forgotten that we're supposed to be putting these things before God. 
I need you to do this. I'm waiting on you for this. If you're taking notes, we're going to talk a little bit about what, what your song is, if you would. When we sing, there's a couple of things that go into it, right? What a song is, it's one, we have, it's, as I said before, it's, it's describing the story of our lives, where we've been, what we've been through. At the same time, it's also predicting, it's, it's kind of pointing the arrow to where we want our lives to go. So when it comes to our song, when it comes to figuring out what we need, we have to be willing to dip into two different things. To find your song, I, I know it sounds kind of fruity, but to find your song, to find your, your hope, if you would. We have to dip into both the places of darkness and into our dreams. You have to be willing to kind of go into both. Now what's crazy about this is that most of us are much more familiar with our darkness than we are with our dreams. Would you say that's kind of a fair assessment for you? You learn first in life how to stop being a child, how to stop dreaming, how to stop having these airy ideas. Oh, well, I'm going to be the President of the United States. I mean, like, was there anyone here? I'm going to be Superman. No one wanted to be Superman. One brave, honest soul. Worse, you want to be Spider-Man? I mean, like, he's super, but, you know what I mean? Shoots webs and stuff. Do, do what? Yeah, but he's not even super. He's just rich. He's just rich with kung fu, right? I mean, that doesn't even count, you know? It's like, come on. On a good day, you can take Batman, but anyways. <laughs> That's a sidetrack. We could be here all day. <laughs> we learn to let go of those things quickly. We learn to stop dreaming. And we learn so fast in life how to survive. Right? You have to learn how to wake up tomorrow on time, you know, how to get dressed, shower, and how to go to work, how to come home, how to be a good spouse and a, you know, a good parent, and then sleep and do the whole thing over. And then again and again and again. And we just learn fast that we have to find a way to cope with a life that's less than what we dream for. And the only way w- which we can do that the only way for us to, to survive every single day when things aren't changing, the only way for us to, to wake up every morning with, with a parent who's gone, with, with a broken marriage, with, with a child who has autism, the only way for us to wake up and to go through it every day is we have to let go of those two things. We have to hide from our darkness, from our pain, from our frustration, from our disappointment, from loneliness, from questions, from fear. We have to lock it in a closet. And we have to grab our dreams and our hopes and aspirations and lock those into another closet. And if we can just keep our dreams and our darkness far enough from us, then we can get through. But the problem is if you start letting either one out, your life starts to get bumpy. When a man who's in their 40s begins to realize that they're getting older, and it's harder to let the dreams and the darkness hide in the closets. When those things start to creep out, certain things start happening in that person's life. We call it a what? A midlife crisis, right? All of a sudden, the sports car comes out, you know, like you know, a fresh haircut. They start working out. 
come on, yes, this happens, right? And, and all of a sudden, these, the darkness, the pain in life, and the aspirations which we've let go of begin to eat at us. And this life is not enough, and we need more. Women do it a little bit differently. They have books. There's a new movie coming out with one of those books, by the way. I'm not sure if you saw the trailer. Come on, don't even lie, you people. Come on. Don't have to be that bad, but okay. We, women find... It's like an escape world. It's like a dreamland. And they find a way to just get there. If it takes a bubble bath, if it takes a mani-pedi, if it takes some wine, whatever it takes, we're going to get away from the screaming children or from the husband who's watching football. And we're going to just get to a better place, right? <laughs> yes, come on, be honest. Everyone's like, I don't like this Sunday. It's terrible. But notice both situations. We are finding ways to take ourselves into a better future on our own. You see what I'm saying? Whether we're going to leave our spouse or get a sports car or work harder to get the lake house, whatever it is, we are going to find a way on our own to attain the future which we were waiting for. We're done waiting because God's not going to hand it to us. Now we're just going to go get the best we can get. Right? Come on. And so we've learned that it's childish to wait and to The reason Jesus is plastic to most of us, including myself, is because we're not willing to be disappointed again. And it's so much easier. We might not be able to have the dream we always had, but we can have something better than this. If I just take charge, if I just make changes, if I just go and find myself a better life. Now, the place that we're supposed to be it's a place where we begin to open up the door to our darkness and we begin to open up the door to our dreams and we let it just start to get us. It just begins to kind of slowly seep into us. It's almost like when you take in breath, smell, and it just begins to just go through you. What happens in this place where your dreams and your darkness begin to meet, it begins to stir a desire for something better in you. The problem with this is, most of us have found ourselves in this place before. If we allow this process for the darkness and the dreams begin to stir just this need for more in life, if we're not rooted and waiting on Christ, it always leads to something very harmful for us, for our family, for those around us. What's supposed to happen? It's supposed to... to filter into us as we are holding tightly onto Jesus, saying, I need this. And it takes you deeper and deeper and deeper into Him. Now, here's kind of the bad news, if you would. Everyone's like, oh great, more, awesome. The bad news for the Christian faith is this. 
This is actually what's supposed to be normal for us, one. And two, we're not supposed to expect things to get better now. Ooh, terrible. Now, it's, it's not saying that they can't. And they can. But you could also end up being crucified upside down just like all the disciples, right? Because everything worked out great for them. <laughs> Come on, be honest. Things didn't work good for everyone who followed Jesus. They all had terrible endings. Read the Bible. It doesn't work out good for any of them, but somehow we can expect better. Edward's like, okay, where's the positive? Like, where's the flip side? This is what it means, okay, to believe. Romans 10 for us says, you know, it says that we're supposed to confess with our mouths, with our mouth, with our mouths. My goodness gracious. If I have too much coffee before I get over, my mouth is it's like cotton. It's terrible. Anyways, <laughs> so what it says for us is that we're supposed to confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts, right? That He rose from the dead. In the Greek, it's much better. It says we're supposed to not believe. We're supposed to lean, trust, hold on to, like grip with all your might. Liam is, is amazing. I love him. Uh, he has this thing. When he wants something, he's learned. The best way to get daddy's attention is to lay down on the ground and to wrap my arms around his leg and not let go and scream, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. <laughs> yes. And I have to drag him, right? This is what the word faith actually looks like. The idea that we're going to wrap around and I'm not letting go. This is what it means to trust, to lean, to put the rest of your life into the, the resurrection. Meaning, not just that I'll be forgiven of my sins, because guess what? I could be forgiven of my sins and die and still be dead. Not just to be forgiven, but to be resurrected. Meaning that there is a life after this life which is much better than this life. What's hard for Mary is this. Mary grew up. She had Jesus. She mothered Jesus. And what was hard for Mary was she also got to see His signs and His wonders, His power, His wisdom, His intelligence, and it was all lining up. It's happening. It's happening. He's the one. He's the one. He's the one. And then she got to see something else, right? She got to see her baby and her hope, her Messiah. The one who's going to make everything better. She got to see Him die. And what's interesting about this is that Mary is the only person in all the Scriptures who was present to see Jesus born, but was also present to see the church born. In the book of Acts, she's present to see things change. And what she actually gets to see, she actually gets to see a community which is birthed in one day to where no one is poor because they sell all their possessions and they take care of all the needs of everyone. Now, What's tricky about this is, right, it's justice for the poor. Those who are hungry are being fed. And God is making space for His people. But it's nothing like what she expected. Nothing. Everyone goes, okay, again, here we are. Like, What is the positive here? The positive is that we get a taste of what we hope for. But we don't get all of it. you get a taste of what it's like to experience deep relationship 
to be connected to your children, to be to experience friendship, to experience you know hope and joy and fun and you know whatever life. You get the ability to taste it, but the difficult thing about this life is it all ends. Everyone's like, you are just so positive. You guys know Kumbaya, the song Kumbaya, right? Most of us, what Christianity is for most of us, is that song Kumbaya. We're singing the song as we go down the river, you know, and it's just a distraction because what's at, at the end of this river? A waterfall. And we're just finding a way to keep ourselves distracted. Just enough churches, I mean, enough, enough Sundays, enough Advents, enough sermons and worship to distract us from the fact that death is coming for all of us. And this is why you have to learn what it means to wait and to hope now. Because hoping is not real to you until it's real to you. Until you have a sick child, until you know, you've lost a loved one, until you know what it is to have pain, and then in your darkness you realize what it is to hope. And what's beautiful about the resurrection is that when we put our hope in this thing, it's a real hope. Not just that I'll get to spirit fly around with, you know, with my child who I lost in the future, but I'll get to hold them and touch them and talk to them and, and be with them. You know, if you speak to someone who's been injured or sick and you know, they aren't able to, to jump or run or you know, to physically have the health that you have, the hope that they have to have is, in this life, I will not be bound. You have something. We all have something which is so real to us. And it, it's supposed to root us in waiting, hoping, and trusting, leaning on God. We need Advent because we have to remember what this whole stinking thing is about. You don't have everything you really want from God. That's the truth. There is so much more that you want from God. But you you have either been taught not to want it or not to ask for it, or you found a way to just survive and hide it, just to bury it deep. But everyone in this room truly wants more from Him. Truly. What your song is, is this. When this happens, then this will happen. Meaning, when Jesus comes back, I will be with all my family forever. When Jesus comes back, I will never be sick again. When Jesus comes back, my kids will never have to to ever experience what war is, what violence is, what racism is, or sexual harm. When Jesus comes back, I won't deal with depression anymore. When Jesus returns, I will never have to experience what it means to be poor. I'll never have to worry about providing food for my family. Ever. 
These are the real things of our heart, of our life. And what happens here, the reason that we have to find our song, if you would, and you know, the reason we have to find our hope is because it does three things for us. First thing is this. It forms our faith, meaning it, it, it gives structure to it. When we find out what we're really hoping for, it goes from, I, you know, when I die, I'll just, you know, I, I, I won't have to burn forever. That's great. Um, you know, I don't really know what else it is, but that's cool, you know. And it starts to hone in. My faith, my trust, is because I want to, you know, speak with my parents again. If you haven't seen them in a while. Again, whatever that is for you, it has form. It's real now. And it takes Christmas and Jesus from being a, a plastic ornament in your lawn, you know, to being something that you live for. Secondly, it, it grounds our faith. It, it gives us roots. When you have something to hope for, it, it gives you staying power. Um, it's kind of a stupid analogy, but um, with budgeting, well, I, you know, we've, had, we've had some families that you know, I've talked with, and, and what they say is, I just don't believe it's going to work. And what's the point in like, you know, saving $5 here and $5 there because... You know, it's not really going to add up for us. You know? you know, we're just too much in the hole. You know, we don't make enough. And because they don't actually see it, you know, if you were the finish line, there's no ability to have staying power to wrestle with it. But the moment that you begin to actually see what you're hoping for, you have the ability to wrestle for it, to stand for it, to wait for it, to, to be excited for it. Thirdly, what happens for us whenever we begin to kind of dig into what we're hoping for in God. And it sounds silly, but it helps us focus, helps us visualize. Um, the scriptures see this phrase where it says, So we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And there's just kind of this, this thing where we go from, eh, I'm a Christian, to I am waiting trusting you for this thing. It fixes us. It locks our gaze, if you would. It gives us determination in life. And so again, you know, for all of us, this, this process, it comes down to that one question. What are we really hoping for? What are we really waiting for from God? What holes in our lives, in our past, in our, you know, emotions, whatever it is, what are we actually waiting for?